0: My daughter went downstairs to pee I had a a loft an upstairs loft where I did uh, a lot of the early episodes of the last symptom podcast and I'd do my work up there and she'd love to come up and uh, be with me and she went downstairs to pee one night and I was gathering some things she reappeared I'm scared she said freely You're scared, I said. Yeah, it's dark downstairs and I'm scared. Well, I looked over her shoulder down the stairs at how dark it was down there and I said, Guess what? I'd have been scared too. You, she said. You would be scared? Absolutely, I said. When I was your age, the same situations scared me, too. It's perfectly natural. Perfectly natural, I saw her mouthing to herself. Was this my parents' approach? No, of course it wasn't. Their approach was to scoff at my fear and to tell me why I shouldn't be afraid. Do you see how this attitude is subtly, yet unbelievably damaging? The message is that what you're feeling is the wrong feeling. You see, you are feeling incorrectly. But are feelings ever wrong? No, they're not. Feelings always matter. Now, this is not to say that... (laughs) They're always based on a perfect understanding of a situation or anything like that, but they always matter in the sense that they always need to be listened to and explored and considered. You know, oftentimes the perceptions or thoughts that give birth to some feelings are inaccurate. That is to say, the thoughts or the perceptions are. But feelings in themselves are never wrong. Did you grow up with parents like I grew up with? Ask yourself this question How would your life and approach to life now be different if you were able to feel your full range of feelings without perceiving them as good or bad, right? wrong. If you had grown up understanding that everything you ever feel is a perfectly natural part of being a person, and that everybody feels those things from time to time. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett. I just got off the phone with somebody who I talked to for the first time I had a, a scheduled appointment with them and uh, the person said I did some research on you before this call she said some people think that you're God incarnate and other people think that you are the devil who just crawled out of hell <laughs> so well I must be doing something right <laughs> so uh, I'll wear that with a badge of honor Brian Barnett, that's my name, and I'm the one who created the last symptom. I once had borderline personality disorder affecting my life as thoroughly as it's affecting any of your lives out there listening. And now I really don't have it. This person I was talking to also wanted to ask me what I thought about all these other voices on the subject of borderline personality disorder particularly the person, I, I reckon, uh, who come up with DBT, which uh, stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. And my response to this person was, show me who they have practically helped in a real way, these people. Show the person was impressed by the fact that this lady... Who come up with DBT has sold so many books. When you do a Google search on her, her name comes up everywhere, um, and all of these things. And uh, so that was my that was my response. Okay, if that's what's important to you, that this person is the most the, the her name is most associated with borderline personality disorder, and she invented DBT. Please explain to me. If, if she's the most well-known, and her books are in everybody's bookshelves, why are there not more people that have authentically and fully rid themselves of borderline personality disorder? Isn't that what you would expect to see? Or is it possible that being the most well-known and selling the most books is horseshit and, and really doesn't matter? That's really not the thing that matters. Do you know what matters? Results. Results matter. Well, I'm happy to tell you that in the three years I've been doing this, I've been seeing people uh, experience real results. In fact, there's one person right now who uh, I consider, uh, the person is is a close follower of my work of The Last Symptom i consider her all but but cured now that's not to say that she's got nothing left to do but uh, as i mentioned to uh, either her or somebody else recently it's useful to think of being cured in terms of like a black hole <laughs> So, do you know what the event horizon is of a black hole? It's a point of no return. If an astronaut were to cross that invisible barrier that crosses the event horizon, it means he's not coming back, not ever. There's nothing he can do, or she, to ever come back across that event horizon so even though the astronaut once he or she crosses the event horizon might not be down in the center of the black hole yet uh, there's no other possibility they will be there so uh, uh, that's, that's that's the way that I view this person here who has been following me pretty heavy and been doing some really good work over the past few years is that she may be nervous about proclaiming herself cured, but she's crossed that event horizon, so it's all but sure. But anyway, uh, that's, uh, I, I'm very proud of my work, uh, and let me tell you a little bit about my work. Uh, thelastsymptom.com is my website full of free resources and there's some modest paid resources there too I really hope you'll take advantage of it thelastsymptom.com of course I have a uh, a healthy um, uh, growing uh, educational group on the Locals platform uh, I reckon it's actually called the locals.com platform but the way you find it is you go to thelastsymptom.locals, L O C A L S, dot com. That's one way to do it. The way I like to do it is to download the thelocals.com app to my phone and then just type in the last symptom and join us there. There's something that I do exclusively on the locals, on the last symptom educational group on the locals platform that I don't do anywhere else they're called orange slices these are very brief video insights that I do daily so if you like listening to this show if you can tolerate looking at my mug uh, every day whether my hair is combed or not these brief video insights do offer a lot of great uh, valuable information for free and I encourage you to join us there on the locals.com group to search the last symptom and start taking advantage of these daily orange slices the last symptom fundamentals course is a pre-recorded intensive two-week program available at the you could enroll right now and you can take it uh, according to your own schedule it's a beautiful thing it's pre-recorded you again you have to look at me for a up to two weeks, <laughs> more or less, it just depends on how quickly you fly through it, but you know, you want to take your time, digest the, th- the information there. Um, something I haven't been mentioning much lately, but I should begin mentioning it more, is the opportunity over at TheLastSymptom.com to sponsor phone calls for other people, You can sponsor seats in the Last Symptom Fundamentals course for other people, and of course you can donate to support my work. Those things continue being an important support system for the work that I do. So if you value what I do, if you'd like other people to benefit um, as well who might not have the financial means to do things like pay for a phone call with me or uh, take the Last Symptom Fundamentals course. but you, If you do have the, the financial means, it's a, it's a nice thing that you can do. Uh, I just had somebody, within the last two weeks, it had been a while, but somebody sponsored a seat in the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, that intensive course I was just talking about, that is superior, by the way, to DPT. There's no contest. Um, and I held on to that for a couple weeks to see who might be in need, of that and and might fit the right criteria for that and i'm happy to say that i handed that sponsorship out to the to a deserving person here just this past week and that person was thrilled so it's kind of unfair i get to see the joy and the the relief of the people who receive these sponsorships um and a lot of times the people who sponsor the the thing don't, don't get to see that but uh, maybe I should start telling you all about that more often got a couple of stories to tell you today because it's been a while I wanted to tell you about my friend Jordan I've talked about him in the past he was uh, killed in a car accident back in 2005 he was my best friend but uh, there was a. I was just telling my little girl this story the other day and I thought boy I bet my audience would love to hear this story so here we go As some of you know, Jordan lived in a barn. Yeah, his family lived in a barn in Appalachia. It was a big green barn that had been converted into a house. And uh, Jordan's bedroom was up on the second floor of this barn. And nearby his bedroom was another room that his grandmother, his mom's mom often lived in she didn't live with him all the time but for months at a time uh, sometimes many months at a time Jordan didn't get along with his grandma and I'll tell you why it's because she could not stand Jordan's dad Dave Dave's the Cherokee Indian I often talk about So, if you can imagine, this was the situation. Dave uh, would graciously invite Grandma to live with him. But, uh, as his mother-in-law, she did not like Dave at all. (laughs) It was kind of a weird situation. Now, Dave was just such a cool guy and so gracious to everybody that, uh, despite... The animosity between his mother, mother mother-in-law, and himself. He always treated her very well. During this time, uh, I was into sewing, believe it or not. Kind of experimental sewing, like just to see if I could make things. I would cut up certain articles of clothing and then repurpose that material to make things for myself. So I had made myself a Spider-Man costume costume a black spider-man mask and gloves and uh, big white eyes so black mask I pulled down over my face and had these great big white eyes i don't know if you guys know about black spider-man but if you don't you can duck duck go a picture of him well one of these days that i was over there visiting at the barn I had brought this mask over and showed it to Jordan. He was just thought it was the most awesome thing in the whole world, and uh, we were there taking turns putting it on and stuff. and And he got this bright idea. He said, "You know what?" He said, "It would be hilarious if you crawled out my window, crawled across the awning there, the back awning, over to Grandma's window, and tapped on her window." Just a to play around with her a little bit and I said I'll do it he said really he said okay let's do it so he had me put on the black spider-man mask the gloves he gave me his black leather jacket he said here put this on I put that on and he had a uh, a BB handgun he said take this take this just to really dress me up and make it look great so then he opened up his window and I crawled across that awning. We, I was probably 11 at the time, 12, something like that. Crawled across this awning, and I took that BB pistol, and I tapped on Grandma's glass. And she looked up with a start. I could barely see out of these white eyes eyes of the spider-man mask but I could see that she was startled and she jumped to her feet and she started screaming for Jordan 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 so I scrambled back like a madman got back in Jordan's window got the mask off got the jacket off just about the time that grandma come running in Jordan Jordan you got to come and see this he says what's going on grandma she says I don't know there's something out on my outside my window. And uh, we're just trying our hardest not to laugh. Really, Grandma, what what did you see out there? I don't know. She said it. It looked like a black dragon. And uh, now we're really trying not to laugh. Black dragon, Grandma, that's crazy talk. It's okay, Grandma. It's okay. So we calm her down. She goes back over to her bedroom. Jordan says, "Do that again." I said, "All right." So I put on the mask, put on the jacket, climbed out the window. We were just laughing so hard; we just can't believe how funny this is. I go across the awning, get to Grandma's window, do the same thing: tap, tap, tap on her window. She jumps up, scared. Jordan, Jordan! I race back to Jordan's window, climb in, take off the jacket, take off the mask, everything, just in time for her to get in there. There's that black dragon! I swear. She says, "I saw." He looks out the window. He's playing this up right. And Jordan looks out the window he says, I, I don't see anything grandma she says no I swear it was it was outside my window and when I started calling for you it jumped down off the the roof and it ran into the woods Oh my god it, we're <laughs> you gotta imagine 11, 12 years old uh, we just we're ready to die laughing we we just can hardly contain ourselves so we get our kicks get our laughs. we. We decide that's enough. About two months pass, and we've totally forgotten about this. And we're out riding around with Jordan's family one day, and he's, uh, Dave's driving, and Dave goes to drive us back to the barn. He drops off uh, his wife, drops off grandma, and he says, Boys, you stay with me here for a second. He said, I want to take you into town to uh, McDonald's. I just, just the three of us. Oh, well, that sounds amazing. Sounds good to us. So we get into McDonald's, we get our food, we sit down. I wish you could see the way Dave was, just his nature. He was, he just never got excited about anything. He was always calm and cool, but he had this deep baritone voice like this, Boys. I'd like you to stay with me we're going to go to McDonald's just the three of us so as we sat down he says uh, we're eating our food and he says "I, I got a question for you boys yeah what is it he says what can you tell me about black dragons Jordan and I both were just frozen in place like how in the world has this gotten back to him and uh, we said black dragons he says yeah he says "Uh, grandma has been having nightmares about black dragons for the past two months and he says I've been really thinking hard about this and what I've concluded is that you boys Probably know something about it. And again, we're still sitting there frozen. Kind of scared to death that we're going to get in trouble. And finally, Jordan, he just tells the story. I have never seen a man, a grown man, try so hard to listen to a story like that while eating a hamburger and trying not to laugh at the same time he (laughs) I could just see it on his face he (laughs) would he loved that we did that (laughs) and finally this great big smile spread across his face and he said that's the most awesome thing that's the most awesome thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, brother. What a cool guy he was. He said, uh, all right, you boys know you cannot ever do anything like that again. He said, "But I'm not going to tell your mother." <laughs> He said, "This'll just be between the three of us," and so and so it was. Uh, <laughs> eventually, Grandma stopped <laughs> having nightmares about black dragons on her on the awning outside her window, and the, the dragon jumping off the awning and running down into the woods, and and it was forgotten about except for. Uh, between the three of us uh, that story would pull that story out dust it off and tell it to each other every few years and just get the biggest old kick out of it alright so there's my story about black dragons I got another story for you at the end of the show uh, but before we get into that let's talk about some emotional health related things can you solve riddles a member of my education group not too awful long ago Says, uh, you know, I'm really confused about something. Let's say that there's a man and uh, he continually does things to upset his wife. She says, what I don't get is if he loves his wife, why would he continually and regularly, regularly, do things to upset her. Have you solved the riddle yet? Let let me give you the riddle again. If a man loves his wife, why would he continually do things to upset her? Have you solved it? If he loves his wife, why would he continually do things to upset her? It's a contradiction for a reason. But the answer to the riddle... ...is incredibly simple. The only thing that complicates... ...people's ability to see the answer... ...to this riddle... ...is denial. The answer is that... ...he doesn't love his wife. It's almost like Sherlock Holmes, right? It's like if you... ...eliminate every possibility that... ...that just cannot exist than the the remaining possibility, no matter how unlikely, well, in this case, not unlikely, but in this case, the remaining answer, no matter how much you don't want to hear it, is the right answer. He doesn't love his wife. That's the answer. You see, love doesn't continually and regularly... Behave that way the answer is that he doesn't love his wife have you ever heard of the following saying when somebody consistently behaves as if they don't love you listen to them or believe them something to think about remember authentic love always behaves in certain ways and never in others There are endless numbers of different types of artificial quote-unquote love, which is not even really love, with their endless selfish and unhealthy reasons for existing. People thinking or feeling that they are in love is not in any way evidence that anybody is really experiencing love. You see, we live in a world that wants you to believe that love is identified by what you feel. And that's a lie. Love is not a... Love is a quality. Love is not just a feeling. What are some other qualities? Well, I've talked about it before. Honesty is a quality. So, if I just feel really honest... ...but I go around lying all the time... ...can I say... ...can I realistically say that I'm honest... ...I'm an honest person... ...no... ...of course not... ...so why people think... ...that love as a quality is any different... is ...it bewilders me sometimes... ...but they do it... ...it doesn't matter how much you feel like you love somebody... ...or how much you say that you love somebody if you are not behaving in loving ways that's, that's all there is to that so the person says well thank you because I'm, I'm running through scenarios in my head thinking how much does a person even respect or love herself in order to keep a relationship like that going I thought I was missing something and here's my response to that you're on the right track you're on the right track then if you're thinking like that you see because how do we naturally treat anything or anybody that we genuinely care deeply for so think about a, a beloved purse that you own or a child or a car how do you treat those things what do you let's say it this way how do you permit other people to treat those things if you genuinely care deeply for that thing or that person you see you don't tolerate others mistreating those things what 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 do you do instead what do you naturally do if somebody is mistreating those things and you genuinely care deeply for it well you step right in to protect and defend it don't you or you try to get that thing or that person away from that that dangerous or unhealthy influence. So, here's another riddle for you. Why would anybody who genuinely likes herself or himself remain in situations where somebody else is detracting more from their happiness more than contributing to it? what's what's the only possible answer you see the answer to the riddle is only difficult if a person's in denial otherwise it's not hard at all it's it's totally obvious the answer is that the person does not genuinely like himself or herself his or her behavior is absolute proof of it if they genuinely valued if he or she genuinely valued himself or herself, genuinely cared for himself or herself, he or she would not view that as acceptable. What would they do instead? Well, just like the purse, just like the child, just like the car, they'd jump right in there and say, hey, that's not going to go on happening. That's not going to go on happening. So the only... uh, occurrence or the only situation where you would have this happening and the person just sit there taking it is that they don't genuinely like himself or herself you see that that's the way people behave when they don't genuinely care about a thing let's talk about medication i've commented on meds in the past but it's been a while so it's probably time for me to talk about it again I myself took meds for OCD at the early stages of my personal road to, re- to authentic recovery and I'll be honest with you they seem to help a bit as far as me being able to focus on the things that I needed to focus on but as I've said in the past almost verbatim. There's no reason for anybody to take meds for borderline personality disorder. You see, there's no logic to taking medications for borderline personality disorder at all, since borderline personality disorder is a problem born of erroneously learned underlying Attitudes and perspectives. Now, I got to be careful with the subtleties here because I'm not telling you not to take meds. I want to make that clear. I am not saying don't take medications. I'm just saying there's no logic to taking them for BBT, BPD as if they're going to cure borderline personality disorder itself. The only solution to erroneously learned underlying perspectives is accurate, accurate education, insight and time. Medications can't bestow education or insight upon us. But having said this, some people might take medications to manage some of the symptoms of borderline personality disorder in an effort to better focus... or be able to do the learning... and the inner rumination... required... for recovery from borderline personality disorder, such as in my case... at one point in time... so it's not like... medications... uh, serve no legitimate purpose... whatsoever... my advice when it comes to medications... is to always... Listen to your doctor. See, it's pretty simple and not confusing at all. Always listen to your doctor. Because your doctor is aware of many possible issues that you might be dealing with that I have no clue about. And really, I only claim any authority in matters of emotional disorders strictly. By the way, in my personal circumstances, all symptoms of the OCD, quote-unquote, I supposedly was dealing with, disappeared entirely about halfway into my authentic recovery from borderline personality disorder. What I'm telling you is that it was related, it was a related issue, it was related to the underlying causes of my borderline personality disorder once I began to uh, eradicate those underlying causes, this supposedly OCD that uh, I had been diagnosed with went away also. You know, another important thing to keep in mind is that the primary person responsible for ourselves is our doctor? Mm -mm. It's we ourselves then our doctor not the other way around so just because a doctor prescribes me a medication doesn't mean that I have to take that medication I still get to decide if that's what's what I feel is best for me or not Uh, same thing with a surgery doctor can recommend a surgery who gets to decide if I'm going to get that surgery or not I do not the doctor so just because a doctor prescribes us a medication doesn't mean we have to take it. We ourselves are still more greatly responsible for our own care and all the decisions revolving around our care more so than the doctor. Any decisions we make like this though should be informed decisions which means drawn on the doctor's knowledge and advice. Still. Because I cannot afford to be misunderstood, my official advice is still for everybody, you, to listen to your doctors. Here's another question. Somebody says, I'm currently trying to wrap my head around and understand why I have this pattern of being so personally offended. If during an argument someone questions my beliefs, thoughts, or ideas, I feel so attacked and insulted and uh, here's my response to that those who live with the two underlying erroneous misperceptions of emotional disorder which are number one my feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful devoid of inherent worth number two and so am I these folks Go about life drawing confirmations for these two beliefs in every negative experience. In other words, every slightly negative experience is perceived by the person as a personal affront. You see, it's confirmation, it's, well, I should say, it's perceived confirmation of what they already consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously believed. Believe, So these perceived confirmations are salt in an already open wound. Now what's the opposite, what is the direct opposite of the two beliefs that form the foundation of emotional disorder? They're this, number one, my feelings always matter, inherently matter. Number two, I have inherent value. Now, does this person walk around overly sensitive, interpreting everything as a personal affront, as an attack, as an insult? No. No. A person who knows that their feelings always matter and that nobody else has to validate those feelings, by the way, if you're an adult. Because healthy adults validate their own feelings. And that as a human being, their worth is an inherent quality to them. That it's not based on whether somebody agrees with us or not. Or whether somebody likes us or not. That we just do have it. That does not translate into an insecure, overly sensitive person. It's the two beliefs, the two healthy beliefs, at the root of emotional health that create uh, security, assurance, and uh, and the exact opposite of what you see in people who uh, are overly sensitive and and emotionally unhealthy. Somebody asked me, uh, can I recover from uh, my emotional disorder? if I'm stuck in the same house with my parents being that they're the ones who caused me to have this emotional disorder in the first place so that's a good question I know that uh, over the years of me working with the last symptom I've dealt with uh, many people who are in these sorts of circumstances so chin up you can still recover even if you're stuck in the same environment That created your emotional disorder in the first place. There will be challenges. There's no doubt about it. But think about this. Nobody's recovery is without very difficult challenges. So it's not like you're experiencing challenges, but somebody who lives alone is not. In most situations, the answer would be to distance yourself physically from anybody who's not good for you. For example, in my circumstances, I physically stopped allowing certain influences into my life. This was a great uh, help uh, in my own recovery. I stopped communicating with certain people. I stopped allowing them to communicate with me. And I stopped allowing their company in any way. You see, I knew that... uh, In the interest of my authentic recovery, I couldn't afford to allow those people and their influences the opportunity to pull me back into unhealthy ways of thinking or to prevent me from escaping it. In the case of people who are still physically stuck in the unhealthy environment where physical distance is not a possibility, the answer then is to create emotional distance. Do you understand that nobody can make you emotionally engage with anybody that you do not want to emotionally engage with? You have that power and control. You can create your own distance and space, even when trapped in the same house with people. So a person may share the same house with their unhealthy parents, but this doesn't mean that she has to engage with them as he or she has usually done up to now the same principles of setting up boundaries and consequences apply a boundary can be as simple as "I, I won't allow myself to be talked to in a certain way and a consequence, the enforcement of the boundary can be as simple as if you ignore my boundary which you're free to do but there will be consequences if you do that I I won't participate in further discussion with you. You see, nobody can make you participate in a conversation. Even if you're sitting there just listening to them flap their mouth, nobody can force you to engage in the conversation. Only you can choose to do that for yourself. So anytime you catch yourself in the middle of an unhealthy back and forth, remember you chose that because you could just simply stop talking at any time. This is just a quick and simple example. Nobody who does not fully understand what healthy boundaries are, how to implement them, how to follow through on consequences, how to create and stick to consequences, which is the enforcement of boundaries, is going to be successful in the scenario of being physically stuck around unhealthy people. So, it's imperative that anybody who is in such a situation study, study, study the principles of healthy boundaries until you understand it completely and intuitively. The person stuck in a home with poor emotional influences who fully understands healthy boundaries combined with the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority, can be as successful in their recovery as any other person who's able to physically create distance between themselves and these influences. It, different challenges, but not more difficult challenges. Just, just challenges of a different nature. Well, I'm gonna kind of keep the show short this week, although I'm looking at the clock here doesn't look like it's going to be that short but I, I did want to tell you this story it's a beautiful story uh, i don't get to share it with too many people in fact when it happened i thought who's going to believe this i don't usually in my day-to-day life have a rapt audience who i can just hey i gotta tell you this this is a long windy story about about this thing that happened in the woods but but you're that you're my audience for this so here it goes a little background i grew up in the Appalachian wilderness on hundreds of acres of untouched wooded forest. My brother and I had this entire territory as our personal playground and as I've related before we would regularly go so far into this wilderness that we could not hear my father yelling at the top of his lungs that it was getting late and it was time for us to come home. A lot of people have a hard time believing that Kids still grow up like that, but they do. Just like in western movies, we had daily and nightly chores. A couple of mine, as the oldest child, was to go down over the hill every night with a couple of buckets and draw water from a naturally occurring fresh water spring. This was not a well. This was a natural spring. Water naturally. Bubbled up from a hole in the ground and it would come up as clear as you can imagine I think I've told you in the past uh, good water is not tasteless good water has a taste and it's the taste of minerals and other things that it, it brings up from the ground with it that's why you know when I drink bottled water today it's good water but I always catch myself thinking it has no taste and I think a lot of people in the modern world are used to water not having a taste but fresh naturally occurring spring water has a it's almost a sweet taste to it so every night uh, I would go down to this fresh water spring it was just a hole in the ground maybe four feet deep if you stuck your arm into it you could touch the bottom and from this hole came frigid Crystalline water. We had no usable running water in our home when I was growing up. We, my father did have a well dug. Uh, they went down, I think, two thousand over two thousand feet before they hit water, and we couldn't use that water. It was just too had too much rust in it. Um, so once we before we had that well dug, we just used the outhouse all the time. Uh, an outhouse is a latrine and uh it was the old style it wasn't like the the new ones that are um that work by composting and stuff like that it wasn't it wasn't that fancy uh, once we got the well dug we could use that water for flushing our commodes and but that was about it you know you didn't even want to take a bath in that water it was just too had too much iron in it too much rust so we had no usable running water in our home so with the water i drew up from uh, this fresh water spring in buckets we would drink that was the water we used to drink it's the water we used to wash and it's the water we used to cook my other chore in the winter time was to have enough firewood collected on our back stoop to get us through the night and the next day, we heated with a wood stove. And this often required me to break out the splitting axe and chop firewood. And this was a job that I thoroughly loved. It was a job that, although very physical, also required an intuitive understanding of the nature and properties of wood. The ability to to look at a chunk of firewood and read it so to speak so that you could then strike it in just the right way that it would split on the first swing it's a real art a deeply satisfying art it was exercised for both the body and the mind so I tell you all this simply to paint a picture for you of the setting that my life took place in when I was growing up. Our home was tucked up against the woods, and we kept our woodpile back behind a shed that was tucked even further back in the woods. One night, during a blizzard, it had gotten late, and I realized that I had not yet done my chores. I'd have to do them in the dark. For a kid who worked so often in the dark, you would think that headlamps or flashlights would have played more into these stories, but they didn't. The only flashlights I remember us having around the home were bulky, cheap, dollar store type flashlights that were anything but dependable. And forget about headlamps. As far as I know, they didn't exist like they exist today. Those were specialty items that were also bulky and crude and As far as I knew, they were reserved for coal miners and spelunkers in National Geographic. So I did a lot of work in the dark, using my own two peepers, and all things considered, I could see pretty dang well using only my own two peepers. I threw on a jacket, my gloves, and I trudged through the deep snow that night into the woods and back behind the woodshed. How to describe the deep woods on a snowy night. It's living poetry. Everything is perfectly still and quiet. Beyond any stillness or silence that you can imagine. Have you ever heard a snowflake land on the ground? In the deep woods, in the night... You can. Another phenomenon that happens in the deep woods with a proper blanket of snow is that if your eyes are conditioned to the dark, the snow reflects even the slightest amount of moonlight and starlight so that you can see all around you. Now, we're not talking about seeing in the same way that you do with daylight, but... Rather, I'm talking about seeing through the woods in tones of muted white, dark blues, grays, blacks, and silhouettes. I had my arms half loaded with firewood, still reaching out for more. When I got the distinct feeling of being watched, Have, has that ever happened to you? I had been so caught up in the beauty of of the woods on that snowy night that I hadn't realized it until now but I felt like I was being watched had I never had the experience that I'm relating to you now I would think that the notion of being able to sense being watched is a total myth but in this instance the sensation swept over me strongly with my arms full of firewood I slowly turned my body to the left, completely alone in these dark woods with the snow pitter-pattering all around me through the hollers. And there, a mere six feet away, standing as still as a statue, was the biggest, most majestic buck I have ever seen in my life a large and powerful American white-tailed deer with antlers stretching broadly from each side of his head being supported by a massively thick neck standing there as still as the night itself only fat falling snowflakes separating the space between us What was I feeling? Well, I wasn't scared, but I was surprised. I couldn't believe how close he was. The idea that he had been there all of this time, quietly watching me, required some processing. He didn't snort. He didn't stomp. He didn't show any disturbance at all. He just stood there watching me, and I, frozen in place, while in the process of reaching for a piece of wood from the pile, stayed still, and I observed him in the same way. His face was so close to my own, I could have reached out and stroked his nose. This experience seemed to last forever, just the two of us, Surrounded by immeasurable beauty. Regarding each other, not another soul around, not man or animal. To witness this moment that was occurring right now. After an eternity had passed. He finally, slowly turned and walked off into deeper woods, I watched him go. He walked while hardly making a sound, a casual grace. The fallen snowflakes made more noise hitting the forest floor than he did walking through it. Many times throughout my life, my mind goes back to revisit that quietly shared moment with the massive and regal Night Wanderer, an already perfect night and experience made even more unexpectedly perfect by this fellow inhabitant of the woods, who, for whatever reason, stopped to observe me for a while you